Hello, everybody, and welcome back to I Only Date Monsters, the show where queer theory meets queer thirst. I'm noted monster fucker Lunastopheles. I'm alleged monster fucker Hayden. Alleg- allegedly, allegedly. My my lawyers have <laughs> never been me caught that this uh, this podcast may be entered into evidence. I mean, God willing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, how have you been, Lou? You know, all things considered, I've been pretty okay. Um, I went on this past Wednesday to see a musical, uh, which I will talk about later. (laughs) And other than that, I've mostly just been surviving. Mm -hmm. Um, I am unfortunately in between jobs, but... I'll figure that shit out, as I always do. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, I've been getting a lot of stuff done. Um, not just like, oh, these little things I've been wanting to do. Like, I've gotten a good number of chores done and tackled some things that have just been sitting around for a while. So it's been a good week just for, like, reorganizing my shit. <laughs> I we've, we've both known each other at points where we've been uh, in between work. And um, yes, I I feel like I always kind of sort of shut down during those periods. Like it becomes much harder for me to do chores or work on projects if I'm not also working. But you seem to usually at least be more productive with it, which I really respect and appreciate. I mean, so I have two I have two quote unquote secret weapons here. Yes, one is the fact that. I just like being able to set my own pace for things Mm -hmm. regardless. Uh, But the other thing is a tip I actually learned from a fellow member of the therapy program I was in for a couple weeks. Okay. And what she says is whenever she runs up against something that like she super doesn't want to do because it's just like I don't have the energy for it or whatever it is, but like it should get done. So like, you know a necessity yeah she always thinks about it as i'm gonna do this for future me (laughs) and like that sounds whatever but like by almost treating the future version of yourself as a different person that you're doing something for it encourages me to do it (laughs) i i totally understand that i also relate to the idea of like it's easier to do things for other people than yourself sometimes Mm mm-hmm so Fun tip for all of our listeners and you as well. If you ever need some sort of motivation, just do that. I'm not saying it works all the time and I'm not saying it's the only thing to do, but like it got me through doing a lot of my chores promptly a couple days ago. (laughs) That's good. I have never, I have never done laundry and put it away that fast. (laughs) Tends to be, I'll do laundry pretty easily and then it'll be three to five business days before I put my laundry into my drawers. Yeah. I'll, I always move my laundry between because I live in an apartment building, um, so I move my stuff in in the hamper where I put my dirty clothes, and I take mm-hmm. my dirty clothes down, and then I put the clean clothes back in the hamper, and then there's, and then they stay in the hamper, right? Yeah, and then there's a few days where like my dirty clothes are going on the floor of my closet instead of the hamper because all my clean clothes are there. <laughs> yes, which isn't a, isn't an attractive look at all, but. No, but you know, I've I've done it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me. 
Uh, but yeah, how have you been? Uh, I've been good. I've been, um, you know, just working along. I actually uh, had a dream this past week that that I sort of it's I don't know if this is really indicative of how I've been doing but I thought it was oh great I thought it was kind of funny and um I mean we earned the explicit tag 30 seconds in every episode but yeah we do um but this was a sexy dream Um, oh sexy dream and and I bring it up because the the basic concept of the dream was like I was standing around talking to people about nothing. You know how it is sometimes. Yeah, some... the sexiest of starts, <laughs> just babbling, just babbling, babbling like a brook, just lorem ipsum get me hot. Yeah. Uh, and someone somehow it was mentioned a uh, a like bath soap that was made of marijuana. I don't know how this came up, but uh, I mean, I I a hundred percent believe you can get THC or CBD soap. I'm I'm sure you can. Um, I don't know why it was in my dream this night. I I don't. Your body really needed some fucking THC soap. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was the like my pores want to get fucked up. <laughs> there was like this big buff dude who was like, "Well, why don't we take a shower together and I'll show you it," and. Uh- Oh yeah, um, for some reason, and this is my dream. For some reason, I didn't understand that he was hitting on me. Oh, Hayden! In my dream. Which... Oh, sweetie. Oh, Hayden, sweetie. And until we got to the shower, and I saw that he was uh, rock hard. Um, Great. Yes. Superb. Uh, I just want to talk about your self-esteem at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a thing I've always had is that, like, I've been in situations where, like, I've been flirting with people and then after the fact been like, oh, they probably don't like me all that much. And I, (laughs) it was just. And you find out later that they were flirting back with you? Yeah, something like that. It's just really funny that it happened in a dream. (laughs) Like, Man, even in your dream, you you can't even escape your own, your your own uh, foibles in your dream. Yeah. I don't know. That Dark. just felt like a real weird mood. <laughs> that is a weird mood. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I didn't. I didn't wake up feeling bad after the dream, but <laughs> I mean, still, like, that's just like cool dream. Way to put me on fucking blast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, on the topic of uh, not knowing someone's into you and. Being in between jobs, let's talk about Megamind. <laughs> Yo, okay. So, um, this is this is Hayden's section to lead, but at the same time, I had never seen Megamind before, so I had a real wild night last night. No, yeah, I, I did want to start out with just like, um, this was your first time seeing it, and I wanted to get just like your baseline impressions of it. I like absolutely do not know how this script got through DreamWorks unscathed. It is not a script that feels like what they were making at the time. This is the time when they made stuff like Monsters vs. Aliens, which I'm sure was a movie. <laughs> um, and we're generally just like chasing the coattails of other animation studios. At this point, mostly Pixar. And 
honestly, if you told me that a comedy film about a supervillain voiced by Will Ferrell would have some insightful takes on power, gender dynamics, and the superhero genre as a whole, I think years before the glut of superhero movies... I think I wouldn't have believed you. I would not have believed you. Like I, I, I kind of knew that Megamind was this like subversive piece of media. Like I'd heard that before, but I didn't realize to what extent it really went out of its way to do some incredibly interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited that I got you to watch this because this is this is one of the favorite animated films of mine, and it's definitely like the least known slash popular uh, of that category for me and it was also you you always in, uh, introduced me to so much interesting stuff it was great to do that to you for a change oh believe me I love being introduced to new stuff so like uh, if you ever have other stuff that I have not seen that you say that to like let me add it oh yeah for sure um, but yeah, no, I think this movie got really unfairly maligned um, for a few reasons. The main one being that Despicable Me, which I don't think was as good of a film personally, came out just a few months before. So Despicable Me, not as good of a film. Yeah. Much more easily marketable to kids. Yes, it it has a lot more elements that are specifically like, specifically elements that are good for kids like there are kids as part of the plot so it's easier to market to them also megamind doesn't have as straightforward of a plot no I, oh my god i went back and i watched some of the trailers for megamind and all of the ones had scenes that didn't make the final cut or were edited in the final movie and none of them really yeah. conveyed the spirit of the movie that well no because the movie here's the thing this movie could have easily just been a like if this had been made right now it could have been a live action somewhat drama movie about a supervillain with like someone from the office starring in it right like it has that vibe where in another life this would have been live action and i only say that in the sense of it carries a weight to it with what it talks about and i we could probably start talking about that instead of just beating around the bush, but, uh, but like it has a it has a weight and and a thought to what it does that really transcends what DreamWorks in general was doing, even with like Shrek being super subversive and like a big call out to Disney. Like DreamWorks is not known for thoughtful critique. Yeah, I think there's a lot of movies in the 2000s and 2010s that just because we've had a huge culture shift in the last decade, mm -hmm. um, even in the last <clears throat> four years. Yep. Um, but this movie is somehow, like, a lot of things don't age well. This movie ages better. This movie is better with age going into, like, say, the cultural moment we're in now. It feels like it should have been made today. If anything, Titan becomes more relevant today. <laughs> Titan is extremely more relevant now than he was in 2010 when this was released right so let's let's jump into i guess the titan of it all is a great place to start um, yeah so you know what here let's we usually would do some sort of plot synopsis but honestly this is worth watching and it's much more a character study than a plot per se 
Yeah, there are about seven or eight beats that sort of flip the plot on its head. Um, because there are there are four or five different characters who all go through fully realized arcs in this film. Yes, and that's first off, this movie handles its cast and its like characters really well. And we have five yeah, five. We have like five main characters. We have Megamind, um, who Megamind and uh, Metro Man are are like start out villain and hero and they both come from another planet they both have the superman story yes and i do love that very early we establish that this is a story at least in part about the privilege of class oh yeah just right off the bat we see um we see both of them start out in the same exact place um coming from like these destroyed worlds but filled with so much potential and Metro Man's escape capsule knocks Megamind's out of the way, and Metro Man goes into, like, this rich, opulent house uh, with very rich people who are, like, so excited to have a baby. And it's a very (laughs) white house. It's an incredibly white house. Meanwhile, Megamind ends up in the county jail. And he's just raised there. (laughs) Which, like, also, I thought that was the sweetest thing. The, there is the buck-toothed there, guy who's like, can we keep him? There is a, from the very beginning, this movie sets up the idea that good and evil is relative to the situation. And we get, you know, this is this is what this movie is about. Hey, like, <clears throat> while we're not going to do a plot synopsis, the one of the main themes is evil, evil doesn't have to, oh, hold on. Evil doesn't always look how you expect it to. Yes, but more than that, it's that, like, a certain amount of evil is contextual. I think. Um, because, like I said, like, he, Megamon lands in the prison and then is still raised lovingly by all of the inmates. And that's, <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. And what's more, that really doesn't, it, I like that take. On the idea that where he grew up was neither good nor bad in the sense of having a loving community. Yes. It was just an oppressive space versus uh, a supportive space structurally, like just as a structure in society. Yes. And we we definitely really come back around to that at the school scene, which is still in the setup of the movie. Yes. Um. And we see Where, a young Megamind and a young Metro Man going to the same school together. and A tiny one-room schoolhouse for absolutely no reason in this modern society. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very clearly just like... It would be set up as just like a visual metaphor, except they actually bring it back later. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Which is hilarious. But you see... Metro Metro Man has already been there for a little while, and he's used all his, of his superpowers to impress people and get everyone to love him. Mm-hmm. And he has a fucking, what, like, cardigan? I don't know. Oh, God. He has a sweater tied around his neck like a tiny little prep. <laughs> he looks like such a little prick. I want to punch him in his face, but it wouldn't hurt. And then Megamind shows up, and he... He sees this and he's like, well, I want to also be loved and respected in school and 
As anyone should want, yes. And so he tries to do the same things, but he, like, messes up. And instead of... I, I would say... I don't even want to say that he messes up, right? Yeah. I think that what happens is, is he... Megamind, of course, he's very smart. He doesn't have any sort of, like, uh, immediate superpowers as far as, like... His superpower is his intellect. Yes. He's an inventor type. Uh, And so his first... Like, he wants to make popcorn for the class. So he, like, makes a little laser that is going to, like, help make popcorn. And he has his little... We didn't even talk about Minion. Minion is the best. I love Minion. Right. So Megamind has uh, a friend from the very beginning called Minion who's a fish in a glass bowl. And he's very cute. So we'll get to him. So his very first invention for popping popcorn hurts no one. It explodes a little bit and catches on fire. And then Metro Man as a child, like, you know, puts the fire out. But, like, it wasn't that he did it and the entire school building blew up. Yeah, no, he... And he he very much tried to do something nice. And while it backfired, he got punished for not doing it right the first time, which is the story of his life. Yes, that's 100%, like, that is Megamind's story. Um, Because he is not the thing that society can look at as like, ah, that is the good thing. He keeps getting put in the corner for making a mistake trying to do something good. Or later on at the dodgeball scene for protecting himself. Yes. And whenever he does those things, he gets put in the corner. And he's like, well, if I keep getting put in the corner, maybe I belong in the corner. And if Mm -hmm. I belong in the corner, I should do something that warrants getting put in the corner. And that's like, that's his turn to villain. (laughs) Yes, that is his path to villainy. And here is where I want to stop and already talk about this. Because this setup alone gets into some incredibly intricate inner workings of class structure and othering. Because this idea that he is put in the corner so much that he believes that he should be there is effectively, I I don't... (laughs) It's a really interesting metaphor for internalized homophobia or internalized misogyny. Yep. Where you are told so often that this is where you belong, that you just sort of accept it. And you're like, fine, I'll be the best I can here, which is usually really bad. Now, the thing that I love about Megamind across this entire film is he never really loses his sense of humor and his sense of play. And that's... One of the nicest things, this movie could have fallen on its face if Megamind had any other personality. Yeah, I think it's very effective that, um, like, you see later on when he's battling Titan. Like, Mm -hmm. he's battling Titan, and they're, like, pairing with Lamppost, and he's like, now it's time for some witty banter. And Titan is just screaming at him. Yes. And Megamind goes, I don't really know where to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) What I, right, and it's like, so anyway, hold on, let's get back to our our characters, because yes. knowing all five of them ma- matters. So we have, we have Megamind, we have Metro Man, we have Minion, who is Megamind's minion, but really companion. Yeah. They are, they are never, this is the thing that I love too. And I love so much about this film. Mm-hmm. Minion is never treated as lesser than Megamind. Megamind respects him and loves him. 
and vice versa. And when they have a fight in the movie and like quote unquote break up for a little bit, yeah. they both seem incredibly bothered by this. Yeah, I think I mean I I don't know that I'd say that Minion is never treated as less than, but he's also Well, what I mean by less than is that even when Megamind is asking him to do things. Yes. There's still an air of like love and respect. It never feels quite so like Yeah, he never seems to be actively demeaning or like trying to hurt Minion. They have a dynamic that's not necessarily fully equal. Sure. But it is um, it is an honest and loving dynamic. You can tell Megamind cares for Minion and at one point like he snaps at Minion early on. Minion's like, why are you being so mean? And he immediately apologizes and gives an excuse. Yes, like, it's 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 just, I understand that the power dynamic is not perfect, but usually the villain, and, like, of course, Megamind is not a villain, as we come to find out that, you know, evil is more about intentionality than saying you are. You know, you are the actions you do, not the words you say sometimes. <laughs> uh, like... I- I don't want to quote this whole movie, but I do love the the line Roxy has later on that's like, you don't judge a book by a, its cover. You judge someone by their actions. And Megamind's <laughs> like, well, that seems a bit petty, don't you think? Right, which is a great line. This movie has a surprising, like, this movie has a wit to it that I definitely didn't expect from a DreamWorks film. Um, it's but, very okay, clever. <laughs> it's incredibly clever. So we have two more characters that we really need to talk about. Yes. One is Titan, who is our villain. And, like, I know we're not going to talk about the plot, but quite honestly, it's a spoiler-heavy co- podcast. Part of the thing is that <clears throat> Megamind creates Titan because he loses Metro Man for a while as his nemesis and needs so- and feels like he needs someone else well, he, he to, believes, to feel like his own self again. He believes he's killed Metro Man. And um, yes. so he tries to, like... Uh, take some DNA from Metro Man's cape and make a new Metro Man, basically, because he's he's one, and that's that's very disappointing to him. Yes, it's it's interesting that this movie also tackles the idea of like, well, you caught the car now, Mister Dog. What you gonna fucking do about it? That's that's one hundred percent the metaphor I was thinking of. And I mean, that's interesting to watch our villain dude win early in the movie and then like not know what to do with that. I want to come back to this scene, but let's finish up talking about characters. Yes. Titan is Titan. Titan's Titan. a nice guy. Oh Titan, God. Titan is the quintessential nice guy is the problem. Oh, yeah. Titan. Titan starts out as a human and then like gets Metro man's powers and becomes the avatar of toxic masculinity. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, like, I don't mean this in a sort of, like, oh, you have to read into it. He becomes the avatar of toxic masculinity. He becomes a villain because our our lead uh, female character will not be his girlfriend. That's uh, and Which brings us reason. to... Yeah. Which brings us to Roxanne, who is Roxy. a character who has full agency the entire film... The only time, the only two times she gets captured, the first time she's absolutely not, like, she's done. She's very, uh, she's very much like the, the Lois Lane to Metro Man's uh, Superman. 
Um, but when she gets captured, she doesn't, like, panic or freak out. She's just calling Megamind on all of his bullshit as he does I it. I love, n- near, the end, near the end of that scene, uh, she goes, can someone stamp my frequent kidnapping card? <laughs> and Megamind responds with, you know we stop that promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she also ends that scene with, uh, same time next week, boys. <laughs> also, there's a point in that scene this like first scene where Roxy has been kidnapped by Megamind where Megamind and Metro Man are having this long argument via metaphor about justice and oh, evil. And she just goes, Oh girls, girls, you're both pretty. Can I go home? now? <laughs> right. I just, my roommate when watching it said of Roxy, uh, not so much damsel in distress as damsel interrupted. <laughs> yes. I've never seen a kidnapping scene where the kidnapped person is so active and so, like, not here for it. Oh, yeah. Like, she's had this happen so often. And later we learn that she was never even dating Metro Man. People just thought she was because they were seen together so often. Yeah. Which is, oh, what a what a little bit of, like cleverness there of like you don't don't assume a woman is dating a superhero because they're seen together often yeah um so anyway these are our five characters yes megamind metro man minion titan and roxy and within this story we get a a really intense musing on the idea of who should wield power the idea of the fatigue of power, the concept of um, culturally built villainy, uh, or the idea of like creating criminals instead of just catching criminals. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of really interesting gender politics. I mean, both Titan and Megamind do things to or about Roxy that make her upset. Yes. And she is allowed to have her feelings for both of them. Because Titan, of course, very obviously just pushes himself on her and doesn't understand no and Uh, doesn't understand consent. And then Megamind has this little watch that lets him cloak himself as someone else. And so he cloaks himself as this dude that works at, like, the Metro Man Museum or whatever uh, and starts to work with Roxy Mm -hmm. to bring down himself right to bring down himself uh but then he and Roxy start to sort of vibe right yeah they start to feel attracted to each other and there's something really nice about how as much as he is lying to her yes in the sense of he is not Megamind he is Bernard he is still otherwise being pretty straightforward and truthful And more so, he is allowing Roxy to, like, lead the the sort of romantic feelings. Yes. He doesn't force himself on her. He doesn't uh, force her to, like, say anything when she doesn't want to. In fact, a lot of their scenes are just like, I'll tell you something no one's ever heard, and you tell me something that no one's ever heard, and we'll just go back and forth telling each other secrets. Like... It's there adorable. Is, it's and adorable. There is an honesty to 
Roxy and Megamind's relationship, even when he's hiding as Bernard, because you can understand why he would hide as Bernard. It's not just in like, I'm going to deceive her. It's like, this is literally the only way I get to talk to her. And I found out that I like talking to her. Right. Because if he shows up as Megamind, big blue dude, like she's going to not, she's going to judge a book by his cover. Yeah. And frankly, his, his actions. (laughs) Um, exactly, and like she, she's judging him on his past, but also mm-hmm. she wouldn't, she wouldn't be privy to that full context of how his past has shaped what he's done. Mm-hmm. I also let's see. So I took notes while read while watching this film, mm-hmm. and some of them are just lines I really liked. Like I like at one point in the very beginning, Roxy describes Metro Man's heart as an ocean inside another ocean. I remember that. Um, there's also a bit where Roxy is in the middle of being kidnapped by Megamind, where she asks where he gets all these Tesla coils and lasers. And they make mention of this idea that there is a supervillain outlet store in Romania. And yeah. I want to go to the supervillain <laughs> outlet store in Romania. Yes, I do too. Please. I hope it looks like an Ikea. Like, I want it to be the most un super villainy store <laughs> oh god um i want to talk for a second about the relationship between metro man and megamind which is sort of the the premise that this is built on it is the lead up to the inciting instant where metro man dies um yes. and spoiler alert he fakes his own death yeah and which I don't want to say I called, but at the same time, the skeleton that ends up there doesn't have enough chin. (laughs) Has severely lacking the number of chin, the amount of chin that that Metro Man has, because he has full Jay Leno chin. I mean, you have to assume that if all of Metro Man's skin were burned off, his hair would survive. Yes. He has perfect, beautiful hair perfect beautiful hair but i want to talk about that scene very specifically because uh i've watched this movie a few times and Mm -hmm. one thing you really i really clocked is that when megamind thinks that metro man is dead there are too Mm -hmm. many m's in this film (laughs) it's true um when he thinks metro man is dead he's just like shocked for a second and then you see you see this like comet exiting the the observatory they just blew up with Metro Man inside, mm-hmm. and Megamind's first expression is one of joy, and then he starts to panic. Yes, and then it's and then it's revealed that instead of Metro Man, it's a skeleton with his cape, <laughs> um, because he faked his own death. Mm-hmm. And it takes it takes Megamind several minutes to figure out that he's supposed to be feeling happy and so he starts acting happy (laughs) yes uh and in fact later when he has a press conference uh because he goes and takes over the capitol building yeah his press conference is you know decidedly not evil because his his description of what what they're going to do what he's going to do to the city of metro uh, what he's going to do to Metro City is the most evil thing you can imagine times six. And then he goes inside the building. <laughs> because he doesn't actually have a plan for winning. 
because he was taught that he was never going to win. Culturally, he was taught he was never going to win because he was evil. And then he wins, not because he is so good at being evil, but like partly because his arch nemesis just got fucking tired. Like, there's a thing about... Uh, this is a, something that I actually really love about Metro Man as a character. Is we could have kept him as an unsympathetic character the entire film. Right? When we meet him as a kid, he's a shitty kid. And in a way, I think he quietly acknowledges that. They don't say it out loud, but, like... The way he interacts with Megamind later in the movie really kind of shows that he's like, I... That was bad. <laughs> yeah, he, he seems to acknowledge that Megamind didn't have to be a villain and specifically he's sort of responsible for Megamind feeling like he should be a villain. It's true. It's like he Metro Man's story is kind of like a better and more fully realized Dr. Manhattan story. That's that's a real real weird wild comparison to make, but I guess I kind of see it cuz he's Well, cuz the idea is Metro Metro Man is impervious he is like he makes up a weakness just so he can fake his own death right uh he's not he he, you know copper which is what he says is like his one weakness it's not he like legitimately just is tired he realized that like they had done this a hundred times and they would keep doing this a hundred more times and it wasn't interesting anymore and it wasn't fun and it wasn't doing anything for anyone. It wasn't just like he as Metro Man was bored. He was like, we're all just doing the same thing and we can't keep doing that. And I was really struck by what this movie did with the idea of when you have that much power and you're a generally good person. The fact that like if you're good and you keep trying to help after a while it does kind of get tiring. And when, <laughs> when you're the only person that's doing it, he's the only superhero in Metro city. And he just realized that both he and Megamind aren't doing anything. They're just surviving. Like this is just their routine. And They're it's just, just not going working through anymore. the motions. And mm-hmm. he's someone who's very exhausted. You, you can kind of see later that he's, it's not that he doesn't want to help people and it's not that he thinks helping people is a bad thing or that he doesn't care. Although he's, he's maybe not as empathetic as, uh, as he tries to convey himself to be sure, but he's doing a job and that job doesn't mean anything to him. And so he retires and he's, he actually has the line, but when you're a superhero, you can't just retire. So I had to fake my own death. And like, that's Which a is good... such an, that's, an, that is a topic. That's that is an interesting thing. point because he's right. He's in a position where if he, if he just left, if he just left and was done and was like, I can't do this anymore, he would be reviled. Like. Oh, yeah, he would be seen as one of the worst humans, or one of the worst non-humans. He is in a better position societally and culturally and socially than Megamind. He is loved and adored by the public, but he is 
as trapped into that role as Megamind was into his. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, the only way we ever hear about Metro Man is how perfect and great he is. How his heart absolutely is an ocean contained in an even bigger ocean. ocean. Like, what normally happens in superhero movies is happening for Metro Man. Everyone loves him. That is also lonely. Like, in the sense that everyone loves him to a point that no one interacts with him sort of just as a dude. No one treats Metro Man as a as just like a person. And, like, that would wear on you after a while. Yeah. Uh, which is, like, again, this movie did not need to do the extra footwork of also giving a really interesting character arc to the hero, quote-unquote. Like, but it does. And it's a very valid point, especially... Uh, now that we have way more of a glut of superhero stuff, like this movie has some very thoughtful things to say that matter now, as far as like how we take in superhero films. Yeah, I am. I'm just really a big fan of this movie, and it's aged so goddamn well. It's it is it is aged wonderfully. Like I cannot believe the only thing that like I have I have two, I have one real critique of it. Mm-hmm. And I have one thing that's not their fault, but it's just, like, the unfortunate fact of the animation. Um, that one is just, like, you can kind of tell the age of this computer CG. Uh, and that's just something that we are all going to have to deal with as CG gets better. And the old CG just kind of becomes a bit harder to look at. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I didn't find it especially bad. Um, it's, not, it's not terrible. It's not terrible. But, like, there are points where I'm just like, ooh, that's a weird... Like... Sometimes the texture on someone's face would look very strange, and I would just be like, this seems odd. <laughs> uh, but my main critique of this film, and this is, of course, a very me critique, is <sighs> it's the same critique I have of every DreamWorks film. <laughs> they always license the lowest common denominator song for any scene. Oh, yeah. That's... <laughs> I am not saying that I am against God knows I am not against popular music being used to score films. I this love movie that kind brought of stuff. to you by ACDC. Yeah, God damn, two different ACDC songs in pretty rapid succession. Also, just like '80s rock in general, and I'm just like, I don't know if this fits. And I'm not saying that it still can't be that genre, but like the ones that they were picking were like. The final battle, like the real big final battle for a good bit is scored by Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. Which feels a bit too celebratory. <laughs> I was thinking, like, even if you want to just scooch it over a little bit, just do like Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. It's... I, it, that, again, this is not a knock against the film's everything else. Like, this is a small drop in the bucket, but it's just a problem I have with DreamWorks as a film company. I mean, I, I've, I've always thought that uh, scoring is not a terribly easy thing to do. It's not. I, I think what you said, lowest common denominator, is probably pretty appropriate. It's that it's none of these songs are bad for the scenes they're in. No. None of them is outright clashing with the emotion or the, like themes of the scene or what it's trying to convey visually mm -hmm. it's just like it's like, just they're they're very 
obvious, recognizable choices at every single one of them. As There's only to... one choice that I liked. There is only one song choice that I truly thought was like, oh, interesting. And that was at one point they used the song Alone Again Naturally, which is like a soft rock song from the 70s. But like yeah. the scene it was used in, I was like, okay, that one works. But everything else I was like, I guess. Um, so a couple other small things and then a couple other big things. So another line, again, this, this movie just has <laughs> really great single lines. At one point during like his his hour of darkness of having won and not knowing what to do next. Megamind says, I'm in a heated existential discussion with this dead eyed plastic desk toy. (laughs) And like, there's just, there's just a really good, nice joy of writing in this film. At some point uh, later, like the actual Bernard just says, I'm not allowed to insult guests directly. (laughs) I love that one. Um, that is the chorus of every like person that has to deal with customer service, but yes. is a total misanthrope. Yep. Um, Titan starts off as like a normal human dude named Hal, who's like the cameraman for Roxy because she's a reporter. I I wanted to talk about Hal because Hal starts out as the the cameraman for Roxy, and he's sort of a sleazeball right from the beginning. Like, you can tell what they were going for, um, but he's automatically, like, right out the gate making all of these over-the-top overtures. He's like, hey, Roxy, why don't you uh, come to my party? There's going to be a ton of people. She's like, I don't feel like being around people right now. He's like, that's the best part. It's just you and me and this wedding photographer. And I'm like, how? Holy shit. He's a, he's a very aggressive person but everything that he's trying to do is like very nice guy stuff he's trying to do things for her but he's trying to do things for her so she'll date him Um, yeah she's trying to do things for he is attempting to do things quote unquote for her when really they are for him under the guise of being for someone else because it's about earning a trophy yeah and when he gets the superpowers this this comes back very like very clearly there's like this one scene where she's trying to like calm him down and be like i i know you you're a you're a good guy you're a nice guy and he's like uh, he basically comes right out and says it um no i wasn't a nice guy i was just trying to be nice to you so you date me and mm-hmm. i thought if i got powers you'd date me but you won't so screw you <laughs> I'm going to burn this city to the ground. Like, eesh. Straight people, are you okay? No. Yeah, I mean, Titan embodies this idea of toxic masculinity. And even though the movie never specifically touches on race in general. Right. The fact that Hal, who becomes Titan, is a cishet white dude who really the only reason he doesn't enact more intense overtures onto Roxy when he is just a human is because, you know, he's a little weak. He's a little schlubby. And like, that's not a bad thing. Like you can be schlubby. That's fine. Yeah. But like 
it is very clear that that is the only thing limiting him from being an absolute raging asshole. Yes. Is his lack of power. And the minute he gets it, okay, so I do want to talk about one scene regarding Titan. And it is the scene where Titan first introduces himself to Roxy. She is in her apartment. I guess he has sent her a ton of letters that shape to look like Titan, which is wild. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that worked out. I had to assume I, that he, like, broke into her apartment and arranged them or something. Yeah, but she was oddly calm about it. But anyway, he decides, oh, I'm going to do, like, the first the first flight scene. You know, any sort of, like, superhero style, you know, oh, I'm going to yeah. introduce you. A, like, he's it's a very Superman thing. And so we get this scene where he is flying around the city with her, and we have this super you know, upbeat, major key string section in the background, making it sound so intense and so epic and so fun. But the entire scene is underscored by two things. One, the fact that we know he's not good. And two, the fact that he is using this as an opportunity to put Roxy in a series of increasingly dangerous situations just to flex. He is not saving her because he is putting her in these situations to begin with, like flying up into the air and dropping her. Yeah. Or throwing her over a building and catching her again. And she And they get increasingly more perilous as he's losing control over them because he's just trying to impress her but doesn't know what he's doing. Absolutely. And the fact that it is scored like it should be a very positive scene. Mm -hmm. And the fact that everything other than Roxy points to it being, I don't want to say a positive scene, but it's like, it's like, Oh, it's just fun. And it manages to land an uncomfortable level of cognitive dissonance that is impressive. And I love that scene. It is like, it is one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever seen. And it's in a movie that was ostensibly for families. (laughs) And it, it it is on purpose uncomfortable. It's not like on accident uncomfortable. It's it's the scene that is telling you exactly who Titan is as a quote unquote hero. Mm-hmm. And and how getting these powers has not in any way made him a better person. It's just enabled him to act out the way he's always wanted to. Absolutely. Um, there's also this movie really loves this movie also just like as from a writing standpoint and this is related to like a joke but also to a series of actual plot points that I really love and it includes Titan this movie sets up about two dozen Chekhov's guns and fires all of them it's it it's really incredible about how Every single thing that becomes critical in the last little bit of the movie is set up earlier on. They're actually very good about not, like, if there's going to be an important piece of technology or an important ability that comes up later, they establish it very early on and they make you comfortable with its existence. Yes. Um like we have a watch that lets Megamind and Minion cloak themselves in someone else's like it makes them look like someone else. Yeah. 
And we use that multiple times. And each time, it's a slightly different variation on, like, what that kind of power could do. Up to and including Megamind pretending to be Metro Man just to scare off Titan. Like, there's also uh, a little gun that he has, like a ray gun, that can dehydrate and rehydrate people. And not only does he use that on himself to save himself from dying at one point, which was one of the cleverest fucking things. It's it's a real, real smart move. But also, early in the movie, he dehydrates Bernard so he can, like, <laughs> pretend to be Bernard. Which also, I love that this movie avoids having Megamind ever kill anyone. Like, he actively doesn't want to actually do harm to people. <laughs> yeah, he's very much... He's very much... A villain for the evil of it, but just because you're evil doesn't mean you have to like hurt. Just because you're a bad guy doesn't mean you're bad guy. <laughs> um, so legitimately, this is what I mean about setting up Chekhov's gun, even for jokes. Bernard gets dehydrated in the first mm, third of the film, and then if you sit through the credits. There is a short scene afterwards where Minion is doing Megamind's laundry. And Bernard pops out of the washer. (laughs) And you are reminded that Bernard was never rehydrated in the film. And so Megamind forgot the cube that was Bernard inside of his pants. And the fact that that joke just... I have a serious question about how many times this has happened. That's, I mean, probably a lot. Considering... Considering Minion's response is, you have to stop doing this. <laughs> um, also, there is a point right after, uh, you can tell when this movie was made. Because right after Megamind wins, there are posters of his face that look oh, like yeah. the sh- that say, no, we can't. Like, uh, or no, They're you the can't. Obama cast. <laughs> They're the Obama Yeah, it's the, the Shepard Fairy Obama face, but it's Megamind. And then later... When Roxy finds out that Bernard has been Megamind and he's been lying to her and she gets to have a very honest reaction of being lied to. Yes. Uh, he gets out of the car, out of his invisible car and says, I can explain. And right next to them, framed in the scene, is one of these posters saying, no, you can't. <laughs> it's a movie with a lot of really clever visual gags throughout. Yes. This movie, like... And, and some juvenile ones, granted. Oh, but yeah. I mean, there's some juvenile way. jokes. That's fine. Um, later, when they go back and they find Metro Man, and uh, Roxy gets, understandably, very upset at him just disappearing. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not... I'm not mad at him, but, like, I get the fact that she would be upset to have this person that was supposed to protect the city just disappear. Yeah. And she gets mad and starts throwing things at him, but because he's <laughs> impervious, the things just hit his face and, like fall away and he doesn't react and it's one of the best visual gags because <laughs> yeah, she just she... throws larger and larger objects at him <laughs> i think the last one is like a goddamn speaker and it just like breaks apart it just washes over him like a wave like <laughs> it's it's just clever the movie is also just clever um and then again allows for stuff like one of my favorite lines in the film a line that made me but stop and have a to tough ru- one to choose <laughs> Oh, no, but I do have at least one of my favorite lines in the film Mm. because it made me stop in my tracks and think about the entire film and what it was saying. Because near the end, where Titan 
now has Roxy. Yes. And Roxy doesn't get like kidnapped like a damsel. She goes and tries to stop him by reasoning with him. And Titan's like, no. Um, so at least like she went into the mouth of the lion and just happened to get caught because he wasn't willing to deal, you know, yeah. to negotiate. But after after Megamind is shown by Titan that she is captured and he's gonna kill her and everyone else, there is a line where he just says don't make Roxanne pay for my wrongdoings. And the level of clarity and self-awareness that this movie has about ownership of, of wrongdoings is amazing. Like, I don't think in any other movie would they allow the hero to have that moment. Not just, I fucked up, but... I refuse to let someone else get hurt because of me. And in such like a vulnerable way. It's a powerful moment. I I really love that scene. I, I really love this whole movie. Um it, movie. it takes a serious look at like what it means to be marginalized and where that can push you, but also um also how you can sort of overcome that and, and rise up and like like and we literally, did... literally fight down toxic masculinity. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the fact that like Megamind was only ever a villain because everyone told him he was a villain, which is something you've already said. But then we realized that no villainy is about villainy is not just like an aesthetic. You can put the villainy aesthetic on and still be a hero. You can enjoy your spikes and your leather. <laughs> mm, I want to talk for a minute about. Oh, I... Megamind's get up because oh. Megamind is all spikes and leather and he has <laughs> the custom baby seal leather boots oh my god yes which like also one could even one one could even argue that he probably just stamped that on his regular boots oh definitely <laughs> uh the fact that they didn't cut away later and show that they were just like pleather or something like one of my favorite scenes of the film is uh right towards the final confrontation where megamind and titan are having uh are yelling at each other basically and uh megamind says oh you're a villain but you're not a super villain and titan asks what's the difference and like lasers come out of the sky and there's a giant glowing head of megamind and it opens its mouth and like the tongue comes out and it's made out of all of these robots and Megamind walks down the robots and just throws his arms out in his black cape covered in spikes and yells presentation and if that is not the <laughs> queerest fucking move right he refuses to not make an entrance the thing about Megamind as a character is he loves the ostentatiousness he, he is loves all about the theater of it he, he loves the theater of it, and partly you could say that's because that, that's how he was getting attention for his entire life. Mm -hmm. But you see that the you see the fact that he has actually built a pretty healthy enjoyment of indulging in that. Um, it's never shown to be wrong that he's an over-the-top supervillain. It's just that he's not really a villain. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love that he just gets to be the most ostentatious human or alien uh and then quite honestly 
I'm also very here for like Mega Mind Minion as like a couple. They're adorable. They're an old married couple. I love them so much. And in the in the in the scene where Minion and Megamind have their big argument about the fact that Megamind is going on a date with Roxy as Bernard. What I love about that argument is not how could you go out and do something and not like pay attention to me or, uh, you know, we have this. It is probably about the big fight tomorrow. Right. But in a way, I jokingly said this just feels like when a couple opens up for polyamory and doesn't really know what they're doing. Yes. Because, because at no point is Roxy perceived as a threat to the relationship of Megamind and Minion as far as, like, emotional stability. Minion is just worried that Megamind is going to, like, fuck up his life, not their relationship. Just like, you're supposed to be ready for a fight tomorrow. This is the whole thing you wanted to do. I mean, I am... I said this in the uh, the Scar episode, but, you know, I'm always here for a, a queer-coded character seeing a straight romance happen and being like, no, stop that. <laughs> yes. And they also, they also pose as a space dad and space stepmom. So, like, the metaphor is complete there. Oh, space dad and space stepmom. Also, space dad. Uh, I love that his accent for space dad is all of them. <laughs> like on, like I was listening to it, and he sometimes will move into a Marlon Brando from uh, the Godfather thing, but then he'll like veer into country western, and he'll veer into something else. I love that Megamind can't keep an accent for Space Dad. <laughs> it's it's great. Space like, Dad is a funny funny bit that they had. Space Dad is a weird, wonderful bit. He looks like Wayne Newton. <laughs> He, he looks like a dude that should be singing in Vegas, and I love it. Oh, man, this movie is just very good. Yeah, high recommends. High, very high recommend, even even with DreamWorks' weird thing where they make everyone's head look like it's a tumor. <laughs> no one in this movie has a normal-shaped head, and it's not always an attractive choice. That's true. You notice it most when... uh. Roxy stands sideways when Roxy's hair is blown back. Yes. That's what I was thinking. That too. Um, but man, this is a movie that like really should be way more. I know that it's championed by people, but I really feel like this should be way more championed. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm glad I was able to convert you over. I'm glad. Like I was, I was excited. I did not think you would lead me wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for Megamind. It is. And we have talked a good bit about Megamind. Yeah. But if you will indulge me, friend, I do have one thing I want to talk about. Yes. I do want to hear about this uh, musical you saw. Yes. So last week I went to uh, the ART here in Boston, which is uh, the American Repertory Theater. And I saw a performance of the musical Six. I've known about Six for a couple months at least. Um, I've been listening to it since it first hit the West End over in the UK. So, Six is a very light musical. It's 75 minutes long, which is pretty short for a stage musical. A lot of stage musicals push close to three hours. And it is, conceptually, 
the six wives of Henry VIII form a pop supergroup and then have a competition to decide who should be the head of the group based on who had to deal with the most bullshit from Henry VIII. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And this show starts off immediately addressing the only thing you know about the wives of Henry VIII. And that is divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived. (laughs) And so much like Hamilton for Alexander Hamilton, six attempts to do a couple things. One, it attempts to reclaim the stories of people that were pushed aside or framed as just one part of someone else's story, like Henry VIII. Uh, Two, it engages with history from a lot of different angles, which includes, uh, I don't want to say fully colorblind casting, but color-conscious casting. At least half of the members are usually uh, people of color in this show. And, of course, if you know anything about English history, that's not what the queens look like. <laughs> and so from there, we have each each one of the six women get their own song, kind of about their life. Um, Catherine of Aragon, the fir- you know the first wife, gets this song about how you're not going to divorce me and I have done a lot of fucking shit for you. And I have put up with a lot of your bullshit. Anne Boleyn's is about the start of the Church of England and then getting her head chopped off, of course. And we go through the line and we have all these women who are describing how much shit they had to go through, except for Anne of Cleves, who literally didn't have to go through a lot of shit. And I love her. Uh, (laughs) Anne of Cleves, historically, Henry VIII saw her portrait painted by a man named Hans Holbein. Mm -hmm. Uh, and thought she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. And then she comes over to England and he thinks that she lied to him via his via her portrait. Oh, my God. And so after a couple months, he divorces her. Uh, he which is kind she of, catfished him via, yes. and the via entire, painting? The entire song gets into that. Like, the chorus is, you think that I tricked you. Uh, you think that I tricked you because I didn't look like my profile picture. Too bad I don't agree. (laughs) Uh, Her song is just about how fucking awesome her life in Germany is because she just goes back to her, like, giant estate and castle. And, like, I'm not here to celebrate rich people, but I am here to celebrate women who were maligned by a man. (laughs) Um, But what I love about this show is near the end, our, our, like, our last wife, uh, who is Catherine Parr. She starts like this is where the show starts to go. Maybe we as six women should not decide who is the most important based on trauma. Okay. Uh, because all of their like they're comparing each other based on their trauma. Who had the most trauma from dealing with Henry VIII, and that person should be the most well loved, effectively. Right. And she goes, maybe we shouldn't compare that because like. Right beforehand, there's a little bit of banter where all the like a couple of the of the queens are arguing with each other, and they start they start comparing how many miscarriages they had. And Catherine Parr's like, "Hold on, whoa, wait, what are we doing?" <laughs> and so, the end of the show, 
is she sings a song about like the fact that she basically had to marry Henry VIII and so had to not marry the person she actually was in love with. But her song gets to this point where it's like <sighs> Catherine Parr's song is called I Don't Need Your Love. And the phrase is first used as she's like writing a letter to this this dude that she really did love and historically she married later but like was in love with at the time but then later like the song turns into henry i don't need your love because i'm a fully realized human without you uh but it also gets into this idea that you know like Catherine Parr literally sings, but I'm fixed as one of six, and without him, I disappear. We all disappear. And so the show, this the show that is a pop concert of a of a of a musical, because like <laughs> each song is inspired by a couple different pop divas. Catherine of Aragon is inspired by Beyonce and Shakira. We have a song that's inspired by Ariana Grande and Britney Spears. And when I say inspired by we don't just mean the sort of tonality of the song Mm -hmm. because the one that's inspired by Britney Spears is also a song about a woman who was exploited since a young age, uh, sexually. Oh yeah. That would, that would be a parallel there, huh? Yes, it would. And so what this show also ends up actually having a really good message about is the idea of how we pit our own, female celebrities against one another mm-hmm. and have to decide who's the one queen when we kind of don't need to do that. And that's inherently a very patriarchal thing. Right. So this show, which I mean, a show about Henry the eighth about the patriarchy, right? Who, who would have thought this show, even like the backing band is on stage and the backing band is even all women. It is very pointedly no men on stage in this show. Which I think is a really great way to drive home what the show is doing. Yeah. It's also just a lot of fun. These songs are bops. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. These songs, yes, are like historical sort of and about things. And like the show even admits, yeah, this isn't like a perfect history, but it's also our show. Like the women get to say like, it's our show and we can... We can celebrate what we want to celebrate right now because we often don't get to. Mm-hmm. Also, the people that wrote this show wrote this while they were in university. Nice, good and for now, them. And now it's won like I think it. I think it won something for the West End, like basically the Tonys for the UK. Um, it's on the US tour right now, which is why I saw it here in Boston. But it will be going to Broadway in 2020, and I really hope it 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 does a good run there. Uh, I think it is the one I'd want to see win Tony for Best New Musical next year because, quite honestly, most everything else coming to Broadway is just a movie as a musical, and I have Mm. opinions on that. (laughs) But if you want a fun musical to listen to, I mean, again, you don't even have to really be into musical theater. These are pop songs. These are straight-up pop songs. It sounds like a real fun time either way. It is. It's super fun. It also is a show that allows six character actors to be the lead, which is not common. In musical theater, women in the lead tends to be what's called an ingenue, which is just like a really pretty high-voiced female. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Like, ingenues are supposed to be the sort of like super gorgeous, 
soft sort of character. They are there to be the love interest for a dude. Uh, where like a character yeah where a character actor is someone who like is good at playing characters uh usually this means that they are a comedian of some sort uh there are not many like serious character actors not because there aren't people who are character actors who do serious roles because it's not usually called character acting at that point it is very much a comedy thing character acting but this is a show for six people to be character actors and so you get to be celebrated for 75 straight minutes. And it's just, I mean, 75 gay minutes. Uh, <laughs> the I mean, best kind of minutes. It's true. Uh, it's just, it is a really good show that manages to punch, punch up and punch above its station really effectively. I like that. I really dig, um, I really dig stories that do that. And I'm and at least going to check out the soundtrack now. You should. Side note, when we left... There was this, like, old dude who was standing there with, like, whoever he had come with. It was, like, some people probably in their 60s who had, you know, yearly passes to the ART or whatever. They had that kind of fucking money. Mm -hmm. And I heard him go, it was a nice concert, but it wasn't a musical. And I had to stop myself from, like, having words with this man about (laughs) what he considers to be a piece of musical theater or not. Because, whoo, I have a lot of shows I'd like to point you to from previous generations and previous decades that do not fit the normal musical theater format. (laughs) Hi, how are you? Are some of the, like, best art, though. Like, Right. Also, the idea that once... I do not believe that defining... A, a a style of art rigidly enough that you can say what it isn't is ever helpful. Yeah, so this doesn't tell a linear story. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not Hello Dolly, and that's fine. Um, musicals just mean you're telling a story with people singing at some point during it. That's the right. only thing about musical theater that truly defines what musical theater is. Anything else beyond that is just, like, delineating it from opera. So anyway, six. It's very good. Six. Check it at your, um, probably not your local theater, unless your local theater is... Boston. Boston, yeah. But, you know, look into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lou, what's next week on the gay agenda? Oh, Hayden. Hayden. Oh, boy. We're going to go big. I know ton of boys. We're going to go big next week. It could be anything. A lot of monsters are big. (laughs) It's true, but um, big in many ways. Mm -hmm. Next week, I just want to have a nice, long talk about orcs. Ooh, you know I love me some orcs. You and me both. You Mm -hmm. and me both. So, So... If you want to reach out to us to talk about orcs or any other kind of monster, you can find us on Twitter at IODM Podcast or on MonsterPit.net, which is a server of Mastodon, at IOnlyDateMonsters at MonsterPit.net. Or if you want to email us, you can find us at IOnlyDateMonsters at gmail.com. And then if you want to reach me directly... Just in case, uh, I have both Twitter and Mastodon. I'm at Lunastopheles on both. On Mastodon, I'm on the server at Snouts.online. And if you want to reach me directly, um, 
you will need something with which to blackmail me. And good thing I, good thing I have that already. Is it this podcast? Because it's kind of public at this point. No. I can't tell you what it is that I can use to blackmail you. Oh, helpful. <laughs> that sort of removes the, the whole point of it being blackmail. That's true. Um, well, thank you for letting me know that I have that threat hanging over my head. Hey, if I don't, if I don't keep a sword of Damocles close to you at all times, then how are you going to do this podcast? Very good point. Well, what would help with doing this podcast is if people would rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on all those We're on every podcatcher. And if for some reason you use a podcatcher that we're not on, let us know. We'll figure that shit out. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? I think that's everything. Cool. Well, then, you know, until next time, as we always say, uh, eat drink and be fairy that's bye When Mega Man thinks, <laughs> when Mega, damn it! Do 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 Mega Mind. <laughs>